Hi, this is Nick Dawson, the editor-in-chief of TalkHouse Film, and you're listening to the TalkHouse Film Podcast. You wouldn't necessarily expect Matt Cahill and Kerry Fukunaga to be friends. They were born and raised on opposite coasts, and as filmmakers are strikingly different. Cahill made his mark in 2011 with Another Earth, starring his regular collaborator Britt Marling. And his new film now in theatres, I Origins, continues his preoccupation with making emotionally acute movies that ask big, cosmic questions about who we are and the world we live in. Fukunaga, on the other hand, is drawn to darker material, the epic immigrant drama Sin Nombre, his unconventional Jane Eyre, True Detective, and also Beasts of No Nation, the new film he just wrapped about boy soldiers in Africa. Cahill and Fukunaga have, though, been friends for years, and as two emerging filmmakers living in New York, have a shared history that is all too evident when they speak. We put them together for a podcast, and as with all good conversations, it took some surprising and fascinating turns. To say any more would be to ruin what you're about to hear. We connected them when Cahill was at a film festival in Pula, Croatia, and Fukunaga had just returned to New York City from Ghana, but the many thousands of miles and six-hour time difference separating them didn't seem to be a hindrance at all. What's up, Kerry Fukunaga? How you doing, man? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I love that laugh. Um, so, man, uh, I'm really stoked we could do this little conversation. Uh, I, yeah, I, wanted to, I wanted to start off with a really generic question for you. All right. You ready? Re- Wait, can I first say thank you so much for doing this? Uh, you are my friend, but you are also one of the greatest filmmakers of our generation, motherfucker. Uh, and that's wonderful. And so I'm really, really uh, honored, brother man. Oh. Thank you very much, man. Um, what was question number one? Okay, so question number one. All right, um, I want—I I wanted to ask you what what has been your biggest challenge to date to become a filmmaker, the filmmaker you are now. The biggest challenge to date to become the filmmaker I am today. Um, uh, you know, I from I started off making short films at Georgetown. Um, one of the things is that you don't really, you don't have a voice until you do it for a while, you know? And it's not until like very recently I'm starting to even discover what that voice may be. Uh, and well, how would you describe that voice then? Because I'm always curious about the idea of voice. And I still feel like when I'm making movies, it's, it's all practice still. Yeah, so, it's, all, I, it's so funny. I was remembering, I remember when we were on the boat, in the, on your boat in the Hudson, and Rob Meyer was there. And the boat was like about to sink or like blowing in the wind. And he was like, Carrie, you've made two narrative features. You can die okay. And he was like, Mike, you've made one. And I haven't made one yet. And, uh, <laughs> and, I, and I keep thinking like, my gosh, it's so hard to do these things. It's like step by step. But um, my voice, I don't know. I think I'm interested in. For anyone uh, listening, it's a very small boat, by the way. It's basically a <laughs> rowboat. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that 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 yacht, like when we dropped off from the helicopter, like afterwards. Like, <laughs> uh, yeah. But but anyway, so um, you know, I'm interested in philosophical questions. Uh, the idea of the self. Uh, I realized, you know, it's it sort of takes a couple of things to like stand back and then look at it. And I realized another Earth and I origins are both um, questions about where the self ends mm-hmm. and if there is a is this. Thing called the self, and I was thinking about uh, Polanski's *The Apartment*, or no, *The Tenant*. What is that film? I think it's *The Tenant*. And he says, like, you know, if you cut off your legs, you say, 
my legs and I. If you cut off your arms, you say it's my arms and I. But if you cut off your head, you say my body and I or my head and I. Um, and that kind of stuff like thrills me. I'm interested in, you know, the the sense of self and uh, and if it actually has any meaning whatsoever. Have you ever gone to analysis? Uh, no. Oh, uh, like oh, like uh, like. <laughs> For my brain? <laughs> for your brain, for your feelings. I'm just kidding. I, I, the same way, like, I, I sort of feel like, you know, that your films or your films, my films, whatever films, one that is writing, you know, is some other expression of, of your, you know, is it, is it the id or the ego? And, and uh, uh, the thing about art is that it has to be driven by the ego, but is the expression from something else? Mm. Well, there's a big there's a big cutoff between your conscious mind and your, the unconscious mind, and that really interests me because, you know, the, your unconscious mind is really dictating a lot of your behaviors and your choices. And as much as you feel like you have free will, even as a director, you uh, or a creator, storyteller, like I think a lot of um, triggers and unconscious um, things are motivating and moving our hand in some ways. And so that's when you kind of step back and you're not even actually fully, uh, it feels like, it feels like I'm not fully, uh, in control of all of that. Yeah. That's that's sort of abstract. But do you feel like that, especially once you're doing your work, like it's not something you're definitely in control of it when you're, when you're conceptualizing an idea and that first initial excitement of a new story idea. Mm. But then are you talking about that more once you, you start doing it? Cause I think you and I have talked about this before. Remember when we tried writing that one day, that cafe in Williamsburg and we're just mm. talking about how hard it is to get started. But once you get started, you know, it comes from somewhere else. I, I definitely experienced that when I'm writing, uh, when I start writing a scene, something else takes over as I'm typing. Because the typing is hap- the, the speed of my typing is pretty much at the speed of my thoughts. And at a certain point, something else takes away. Like I've written things in the scenes that were totally not planned and didn't mm. come as an idea before I was writing it. Oh my gosh, totally, totally, totally. Actually, in this scene, in this, you, you made me think about the scene uh, where Sophie comes into the lab and she starts talking about the worms. Uh-huh. Uh, and she says, you know, and, and it was weird because this is one of the like final scenes that I wrote I kind of slotted it into origins originally it's just description like she comes into the lab and these things happen but I skipped it and I remember when I sat down to write that scene I didn't know what it was going to be and now it's like the whole meaning of the movie for me which is or like it's the it's the key to the to the science meets spirituality yeah what was it what was it that she said that she was upset about in the lab? Was it about the hurting of the worms? Uh, well, no, she says, I, I mean, at first she starts off with that, but what it really, she says like, you know, you torture these worms. Uh, yeah. But then she's, but, but the the purpose or when she, she uses what he's doing in the laboratory to explain her POV. And she says, she says, uh, how many senses do these worms have? And he says, uh, two, uh, smell and touch. And she says, and, and you modify them to have vision. So prior to this, uh, they don't have vision. So there's a whole entire dimension that they don't have access to that we are very well aware of uh, and that it is influencing the dimensions that they do have access to. Or right. the sensor, you know, like light yeah. can warm up an apple and make it smell delicious to a worm and then the worm can follow that. And like that's how coincidences can work. You know, there's a rhythm to it. Or there, there's like, a, there can totally be, it follows logically that five senses are by no means the limit of what a human can, I mean, are no, by no means the limit in which an organism or anything can experience or that there are. Um, 
And those other realms, which we would call the spiritual, you know, like we have to—that's the word that we've come up with um, to describe the, the the metaphysical realm that still is affecting our, you know, our, the five dimensions which we do participate in. I I, abs- I mean I'm I'm I absolutely agree with that. Mainly because I've I've experienced ghosts in my, really? my life. Yeah, I've definitely experienced ghosts multiple times and learned things from experiences that I couldn't have known just by. Sure. By chance, you know. Can you tell uh, a story of a ghost? Um, sure, I, I could tell. Uh, the most, the clearest one where I learned something in the experience that I couldn't have known was uh, in Mexico City. Um, I uh, had just arrived to start pre-production for Sin Nombre. I'd been there many times, and there was just one hotel in this old part of town that I would stay at to write sometimes. And um, I, I decided to stay there as you know my initial place before I found an apartment in Mexico City. And it's an old building. It's an old hacienda from the 1700s in the middle of town. And um, hacienda is probably the wrong word for it. But those old kind of Spanish buildings at the courtyard right. in the middle. And uh, I was kind of stressed and kind of anx- anxious. And uh, I went to bed you know, around, I don't know, 1 in the morning. And I woke up because I heard crying. And it was this... this uh, weird, almost like phasing uh, sound of, of crying where it would come close and then go away and come close again. And mm. at first I thought it was in the room next to me, and then I realized it was in the room with me, the crying. And it sounded like a, ba- like a baby crying. And it was this kind of like staticky, like a record player kind of sound mm. that went with it that sort of like distorted it, mm. um, like popping and scratching kind of a sound. And then, you know, the, the hair on my back stood up and I, I, I was awake. So I, I, I didn't turn and look at the, where the sound was coming from. Instead, I reached out to my laptop and I turned on iTunes just to play some music <laughs> to try to settle me <laughs> and, and just focused on the music until I could fall asleep again. So in the morning, I go and talk to the uh, concierge and I say, uh, hey, is there you know, a family in the room next to me, even though I knew it wasn't in the room next to me? And he said, no, no, you're all alone in your side of the hotel. And I was like... I'm like, this is going to sound crazy, but um, you don't have ghosts here, do you? He's like, oh, no, no, of course not. There's no ghosts here. Uh, and I'm like, oh, that's weird because, you know, I heard this baby crying. He's like, oh, that's the little boy. He won't bother you. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> you know, can I change rooms? And uh, uh, um, and uh, so I changed rooms that night. And I, it's a really small hotel. There's only like probably like six people there. And I was eating dinner that night, um, you know, the following day. And the hotel staff came up and talked to me. And they asked me what I'd experienced, and I told them, you know, that what had happened. And they said that sometimes a woman walks through the uh, the restaurant as well. And I said, well, why is this place haunted? And they said that in the 1930s or 40s, uh, the, the building was abandoned, and uh, transients lived there, and uh, there was a fire, and a family burned to death in the side of the, fa- the the hotel that I was in, and they had a, a three-year-old boy. And, then, and that's when I realized. Not only did I hear the boy crying from the fire, but that crackling and popping sound I heard wasn't static like a record player. It was the sound of fire. Wow. Wow. So, so you know, there are those those things that somehow every now and then we, we tune into and we don't know where they, what they are. Um, I'm not saying that this ghost had conscious uh, a conscious power or anything. Mm-hmm. It, it might have just been a reflection of an event. That remains, you know, but there are definitely the, the senses that we aren't fully aware of yet. I mean, even on, in the in the senses that we do have, like in sight, there are there are spectrums of light that we cannot see, right? Like infrared and everything. Yeah. Well, what's crazy about that story, and and those kind of stories happen. Like, how do you move on with life without holding on? Like, without how do you go back to normal life 
tables and chairs and reality when an experience like that happens. One has to, obviously, and, and part of life is like ignoring that. It's like the same sort of thing when you see in dis, uh, like injustice in the world and then you don't see injustice in the world and you have to go about your life without, you know, like negotiating between uh, the anger one feels towards injustice and like having to like tie your shoes and, you know, shave or whatever. Um, it's, it's weird, the idea to like experience that sort of metaphysical thing and then just be like, all right, here we go, back to like, you know. Yeah, I, I Starbucks. It's, it's always about scaling our experience, right? I don't think the human mind, as it is right now, is able to to, to cope with much much more than what we do on a daily basis. You know, it's the same reason when you know when you're camping or something, and you're someplace and you see the stars, and for a second you're able to 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 feel. And I think it's always a feeling, like inside of yourself, you feel the immensity of it all. You feel what infinity <laughs> is, and. Yeah. Uh, uh, and then it's gone. It's like it's a fraction of a second, and it's gone. Um, in the same way that when we we like to sit and look at vistas. Why do we like to look at vistas? You know, it gives us mm. a second to take in more than our normal world allows us. But always, always in short bursts. Um, okay. I feel the same way about history, though. You know, it's like to feel the scale of history is nearly impossible. Mm. Uh, um, you know, where you are right now. I'm history sure of the of the Earth, like the. 14 billion years or the humanity like 50,000 years it all like civilization like 3,000 years yeah I guess all of it's kind of fractal keeps going yeah. I mean where you are there's got to be ruins of the Roman Empire somewhere right and and uh, Brioni for example there's yeah. Roman ruins and the Romans you know everything we are today the dramas that we depict in our films was the same kind of stuff they were writing in their stories that hasn't changed the only thing that's changed is our our ability to Google things we don't know and to, to <laughs> travel places faster and maybe right. some medicine, you know, it's, it's, right. uh, you know, they, they, they had, they had hot, hot water plumbing, uh, on Santorini, uh, 3000 plus years ago. You know, mm. it's, 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 it's crazy to imagine the starts and resets we've had as civilization. But then also then you look at 3000 years is nothing when you look at the age of a rock, you know, or a yeah, piece right. of, you know, obsidian or a petrified tree, you know, but it's, well, it's, go you ahead. Know, it's interesting. We had a conversation before about the dinosaur footprints. That was something that like kind of struck me, uh, he here when I was here a couple summers ago in Croatia. The, the Roman ruins, and you can see, like, all, you know, you see how the civilization, you know, laid out the streets and where, organized this small city. And, um, and it was, like, the center marketplace, and it's the center of, li of, like, cultural life was on this, like, this location, Umbrioni, uh, for this particular city. And right next to it, on the beaches, uh, on the beach rocks, there were dinosaur footprints, a oh. series of them. Yeah. And and it was so it it was kind of this like profound moment or for me where I was thinking where I thought, you know, this civilization had risen and fallen and like and they didn't know what dinosaur they didn't know what dinosaurs were. And they may have had myths of dragons. You brought that up before. The, the myths of dragons and stories of giant beasts. Paleontology didn't start till, you know, 1810 or something like that. And there was no concept that these are 200 million year old like giant lizards that were then eradicated by a giant uh, meteorite that hits the Yucatan. Like all and 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 for me that was really inspiring for this film. Like sort of coming back to it in, in that sense is that I was thinking, well, what's our civilization's dinosaur footprints? What what may we rise and fall without ever 
knowing the significance of. And yet throughout our history and our culture, it's had, um, you know, poets have wrestled with it, scientists, religious people, and stories and narratives have been created about the eyes and, and you know, some sort of metaphysical encoding or the eye of Oruz or the, you know, the eyes, the window, the soul, greatest cliche of all time. Um, but, you know, it, it's not until the late 80s that we actually started cataloging iris, you know, irises in a database. And, uh, and, and so that's where this sort of narrative was drawn from. Uh, from I, I, I always like how you, you start, especially when you're writing something at dinner parties, you throw it out at, like this <laughs> bit of science that you've just learned about to gauge, <laughs> to gauge not, not only the, the audience's reaction to it, but the questions that they poke holes into it. Wait, were we at that one where I was kind of talking about the aliens? Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> 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 uh, how many alien races are there again? Four. There's uh, <laughs> well, there's four with interstellar space travel technology. <laughs> there's the Tetrans from the Pleiades. Uh, you know, the, the tall whites, as they're known, or the Nordic aliens. But, there's you know, the- your stories are always laced with a, a, a bit of, like, truth as well. Like, I did look up after that dinner party, the Canadian, the Canadian, was he a Defense general? Minister. Defense yeah. minister. Yeah. It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, tell the people what you're talking about. Uh, oh, to contextualize, uh, so I'm... I've written, actually, now the script's done. I wrote a story. uh, It's a story about extraterrestrials in the Milky Way galaxy, and and it's sort of uh, based on, this is a great word, panspermia theory. It kind of sounds like a science porn. porn. Uh, (laughs) But panspermia. Or a really huge facial. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. I mean, uh, I don't know how the idea came to me, but anyway. (laughs) And then... uh, (laughs) (laughs) um but the idea is that life you know there's a theory that life originated on earth which is uh 4.5 billion years ago the universe is 14 billion years more or less and life originated 4.5 billion years ago but simultaneously uh so like from the primordial soup as it were are you going to talk about the great explosion Uh, the great explosion exactly which then uh sent little like sperms or like little microorganisms like tiny live uh tiny like uh single-celled organisms throughout the galaxy on these meteorites and uh on earth around 4.5 billion years ago we also were collided with a ton of uh meteors um so the notion would be that carbon-based dna rna life would exist on all these earth-like planets within the milky way which you know scientists in the last Actually, since another Earth came out, there have been the discovery of light and confirmation of like 2,000 other Earths and in our Milky Way. And there's an idea that there's, you know, perhaps millions of Earth-like planets, you know, in the Goldilocks zone with rocks, water, uh, and the, the ability to sustain life as we know it. Carbon and so, life. yeah, carbon-based life. And so then, you know, and, and the, the sort of trajectory of uh, the species on uh, biodiversity and the species on life is like there... It, there's that sequence in Noah that's actually the best part of that movie, which is the uh, where it shows the microorganisms. And we all know the story of like you know they turn into like salamanders and they climb out onto the water and then they split into reptiles and mammals. But th- that would occur all over. Like that's not completely arbitrary. There's sort of a survival of the fittest um, uh, rule to it that like once you get an eyeball, once you evolve an eyeball, for example, you're more powerful than 
you know, all the blind species. Once you have legs, you're more powerful than et cetera, et cetera. And so all these particular species would exist, uh, you know, similar, not terribly different among these Earth-like planets in the Milky Way galaxy. And four of them have uh, interstellar space travel and, and, and a number of them have sentience. Um, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. What do you think drives that? that interest, that curiosity? And then how does that relate then to why you tell stories or how you live your life? Uh, I think, well, that's a great question. And I think that uh, the only thing we are is our narrative. And this is something, I, like the Talk House had me write a small piece about, um, or asked me to write a small piece on uh, Coherence, which is this new film that came out that was really, really, really clever, really thoughtful. And it was about um, string theory and like meeting like multiple U's, like dozens and dozens and potentially millions of U's. And it was, and it made me think about how, you know, we aren't even ourselves. String theory is like this, the theory of the multiverse existing and there being many, many universes. And if there's so many U's, if there's a billion, 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 trillion, gabillion, infinite number of U's, like Carrie Fukunaga's, can you believe it? There's that many. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, the the difference among all of them is their narrative, right? Your narrative of your life and your narrative um, is is what defines you, not your molecules, not your your not your um, uh, your phobias or fears or desires. It's really just you know what what you tell yourself is you, and and I feel like. You know, religion being one of the greatest stories of all time, different, you know, different religions across the globe having hundreds of millions of followers, you know, various, the top five, I don't know what all the top five religions are. You get this sense that like a lot of it is narrative to kind of like make us feel peaceful. And existentialists and the great existentialist writers always th thought that it was the task of the artist to uh, make meaning. You know, it's our responsibility to make meaning. Otherwise, there is no meaning. And, uh, and so I like to tell stories that are, that, that are minimalist sci-fi that almost you could believe they're real um, to then uh, uh, make us give comfort, ultimately, or like lessen a primal existential fear. In Origins, it's the fear of death or the, the pain of losing someone. So to like diminish that just a little bit, if possible. And in Another Earth, it was um, the fear of like intense singular loneliness uh, and, and the, the, the desire for connection through empathy. Mm -hmm. and, and those, you know, those are things that, that, you know, narratives do is they kind of give us comfort. Like I like the comforting narratives, the ones that make us feel like, oh shit, it's not that bad. You know? <laughs> I somehow find the darker narratives. Okay, let me ask you this. So if, if our narrative is what defines us and separates us from all our repetitive selves, how do you, how do you live your life? How do you live a fuller life? Then, what is your version of the the, the best possible narrative for yourself? Uh, well, this is something I remember. It's something you said many years ago on the terrace of the spot in the West Village with a guitar, saying that I, you know, I'm deciding to live my life well and enjoy it. And and it was such a like simple statement, but like that that really stuck with me. I was thinking about that. You know, I've decided to live my life well and enjoy it. And that means not being numb 
um, you know, uh, surrounding myself with people that I love and, and that's kind of it. Surround myself with people. And, you know, I fell in love. I'm yelling and life yeah. is beautiful. And I'm in Croatia next to the beach at a film festival, which is kind of nice. Talking to you on the talk house. That's pretty good, I'd say. And, uh, and, you know, and to engage, like to not sort of, uh, to not blind myself until, you know, I, I'm gone. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that's sort of the narrative. But it's, it's like, I'm also interested in the fact that the mind is so malleable. Like, you can't really trust your narrative that much, you know, just the, and, and maybe this is just a feeling of being on a press tour. Like, I've been in so many cities where you kind of forget which city you're in. And mm -hmm. it's, especially if you're not the one doing the driving of the car or the flying of a plane, like, you are actually kind of like, you close your eyes and you're in another place already because you're like yearning for sleep. Mm -hmm. It makes for very disjointed narrative of like, wait, when did that, was that in Dallas or was that in Chicago or was that in Boston? No, that was Toronto. Wait, no, was that, you know? Um, it, that goes to scale again, doesn't it? Like uh, how yeah, much, yeah. How much we're able to compute. Um, There's that great torture device. Have you ever read Douglas Adams' The Life of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? Remember it was? There's like a torture device in it. And the whole, uh, they would put people in it. It was called the total perspective vortex, maybe. And, uh, and the idea is the simple thing is it just shows the entire universe. And then it puts a little dot that says you are here to show uh -huh. you how insignificant you are. And anyone who went into it would lose their brain. Uh, except for this one guy, they put it and then he walked out. He was like, you know, I control a pretty significant portion of the universe. I'm not that bad. His ego <laughs> increased. <laughs> Um, he, he, was, just, he probably already was a sociopath. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I was going to ask you something. Oh, it was it was actually something I talked about on Saturday night when I first got back and I saw like Rob and Amir and all them, and I was just talking about uh, spontaneously in a little toast was I don't think we exist at all unless we exist in the memory of our friends. So in a way, it's like we're all sort of like you know reference files. Uh, on, on, a, on a timeline and like we don't exist unless our friends are there to remind us that we exist <laughs> friends and family obviously um, like, what, like what is a memory if you're the only one that knows it you know yeah right it's a dream or you know what got you in what got you into directing by the way I never knew this story of like when you started I, I wrote my first short story like when I was like 10 probably that I wanted to oh. make into a movie <laughs> no kidding planned it out yeah and then i think i wrote my first screenplay when i was 14 because i learned how to type while i was doing it because uh, <laughs> it was taking taking too long to hunt and peck of course it was a civil war story <laughs> really yeah. seriously yeah so cool. um i don't know i don't know uh um how other than it i needed to you know like my mind needed to, to write and make stories and and, and tell stories and they were always somehow these epically difficult ones to do for lo for no money. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm still trying to learn how to write uh, a, a, a simpler, cheaper story that I can do with, with less resources. Um, um, somehow a scene always gets put in with a train with like 500 people on it. Or <laughs> oh my god, I love that. That movie's so good, man. That movie is so good. Oh, thanks, dude. Um, but, you know, I don't know. I, I, I can't see myself doing anything other than directing, even though oftentimes I find directing so painfully difficult, uh, just how much it takes out of you. 
Um, and then you ask yourself, well, okay, what am I doing? Well, I, it, I, I hope to God that it does provide some kind of meaning. But uh, at the same time, it, I feel like it's pe- people. I think people's imagination of what directing is, is to what it actually is is, is vastly different. You know, so, <laughs> you mean um, like the chair and you sit there with a the megaphone and kind of like yeah, yeah, yeah. Get massages uh, all day long. That's that's what my sets are like. <laughs> I remember when the there was a massage lady that came like the last day of shooting on Jane Eyre, and I was so shocked. <laughs> I was like, I, I was like, this is amazing. I have no time for this. Uh, all the other people in the crew got it. Yeah, that's cool. What do you do? You see yourself still directing movies forty years from now? Yeah. Oh yeah, totally, totally. I mean, uh, forty years from now, how old would I I'd be? Seventy-five years old. Uh, I hope so. Um, I hope, you know what, I hope, I hope at 75, I'm like trying to push some limits. Like I, uh, like I, the fun part for me is trying to do some new stuff, even if they're small little things, you know, like experimenting in the actual movie or trying to do, like in this movie, we have a double vertigo shot. I was really like excited to do, or like visual deja vu, which was something I wasn't really sure whether it would work or not, but, but, uh. How did, you like, do, how did you do visual deja vu? I, I, I saw the double dolly. Oh, the uh, double dolly. Yeah, the, uh, the visual deja vu. Um, it's the... Um, so I had this theory that deja vu comes from compositional repetition. So, like, if not the same things, but thing, things spaced similarly and objects placed in a room and uh composition basically uh repeated but the dressings being different and so in this film i really i wanted to test that out because i really wanted the audience to get deja vu or be like to not have it and then all of a sudden uh, get it and so what we did is we took a lot of pains to design uh and we were you know initially we were going to build this but we just did some build-ons on the set on, on a live set, which is to make the hallway in New York and the hallway in India, the placement of the hotel room in India and the placement of the apartment in New York and the placement of the elevator all in the same composition in the window in the back and the camera movement to be the same. So like, so like uh, one's New York, a New York loft, an elevator, and one's India, this posh hotel, elevator, window, light coming in from the window. Everything is precisely like mapped out two-thirds of the way down on the right side is the hotel room two-thirds of the way down is the hallway so that when they enter that space in that composition uh ian and salamina it will trigger subconsciously up your spine hopefully is the idea uh you know you won't even be able to place why you feel deja vu but you do feel deja vu Mm. uh and i feel like I feel like it worked. I mean, I don't know. I feel like it worked to some degree, and that was exciting because that was something. Well, it should, it should work, you know, on, on the unconscious level. So exactly, that, that's the point. It's supposed to happen, so you don't think. If you're, if you're, if you're, if you're, if you're aware of it, then it's, then it's problematic. Yeah, yeah, precisely. kids on the Beast of No Nation because, you know, it's obviously about boy soldiers. And apart from the main kid, we had a whole cadre of, of young young boys who were part of this theater group that we trained um, that didn't exist before that, but we created like a theater group. 
the, the ones that glowed or the ones that came with us to film. And, you know, a lot of times they're just sitting there observing things. So it was pretty amazing about halfway through the shoot where I, I caught them. They were redoing scenes that we'd already shot and impersonating like Idris Elba and doing it really well. And, and, and just laughing amongst themselves, but like, you know, as kids would, but they were, they were acting. (laughs) And they knew all the lines, (laughs) different parts. And and it's like, some of these kids can't even read, you know, so they just did it by memory. That's amazing. Um, So then I had them do it on camera. (laughs) So I put it in the movie. I'm so excited to see it. How, How long were you in production on that? Uh, was on production. That was six, seven weeks. Seven weeks of shooting. I'm yeah. so impressed, man. You uh, like um, finished True Detective and jumped right into making a movie. It's like kind of hardcore. Yeah, not advisable. So, and this is this goes actually to the. How much do you believe in the philosophies of your films? First off, ah, uh, um, the uh, well, in this film, I try and like respectively show both sides, and I kind of. I feel like the worm scene is my philosophy, is my feeling on life. Uh, so, so very much so in this. It's hard. I, like, okay. it's very, I, feel, I feel like an uh, a umbilical cord connected to, to the meaning of this, the film. And that's why it's kind of, I would have a hard time uh, making a film that's not uh, a film that I wrote if I didn't uh, totally jive with the philosophy. Why? Yeah. Well, okay, so my, my family is Buddhist, right? Japanese. And my, my father was raised Buddhist and grandparents Buddhist. I've watched them meditate our whole lives. Um, so reincarnation is definitely a part of, of that belief. And, uh, my, my little sister is uh, adopted from Kazakhstan and early in her life, she went to a baseball game with my dad and a couple of friends and they were talking about a book they're reading. And suddenly she started talking about this book. Like she knew all about the book. Uh, it was the friend that was talking, not my dad. So it's not a book that existed in the household. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she knew the story. She knew what it was about. She knew the author. And my dad asked her, because it wasn't a new book. We wouldn't, wouldn't have commercials about it. You know, this is before, really. She was like seven years old. My dad asked her, well, how, do you know, how, do you, how do you know these things? Huh. She's like, I don't know. I just know it. And it was one of those like spooky moments where you just sort of realized Whoa. she didn't glean this from somewhere else. This is a memory that, that predates this life somehow. That's amazing. That's amazing. And maybe uh-huh. that's also what makes children such great actors when they can because they're able to tap into experiences that they've never had before and pathos as well. Right, right. And they're really good at, uh, at pretend, but it feels like it is a tapping into something on another domain. That's not, like there's no question there's another domain. Like it seems like you've had and you and your family have experienced that stuff and you just kind of – you just kind of put it into your wheelhouse of living – but like whenever I have telepathic moments, which happen every now and then, um, you know, when you're with someone and you're like, you completely connect with what they're thinking. Or uh, once I was in D.C. when I was working at National Geographic, I used to drive a Vespa to, to, from my place to, the, to Geo. And one time I like, I usually locked it up. And one time I didn't lock it up. And I went in. I was only going to go in for like five minutes and grab something. I ended up staying there for like four hours. And when I went outside, uh, my bike was stolen. And I was like, no. And suddenly I had this flash in my head. Uh, and my body was like, Mike, just start walking this way. And so I like, started walking down the street in DC. Uh, then my body was like, Mike, take a turn left. And I took a left. I started walking. And it was like, take a right. And I kept walking and walking. I walked for like 
like 30 minutes maybe. And I turned the corner and my bike was sitting right there at a park. And like my knees started shaking. And it was like I had flashes of it in this park that led me there. Then I walked up to it, I stuck my key and turned it on and drove home. And I have no explanation for that. Did no one try to stop you from driving it away? Uh, no, because I had the key. Because right. whoever jacked it, like, wired it, you know, or whatever. They, like, yeah. they took the front off and, like, put the wires together. Like, I don't know how to jack a bike, actually, but I know that I, the key was still in my pocket. Um, and those kind of things, like, I can't, like, I always try and, whenever that happens, I'm, like, trying to figure it out. Um, uh, but, like, yelling up, for example, was, like, you know, just, like, don't ask too many questions. Just go, go with it. <laughs> so yelling up. <laughs> um, oh man! Well, man, I'm looking forward to watching your movies for the next forty years. Thanks, um, man. Like vice versa. Any any kind of conversation that can be sparked, anything where your story is more than than just the the the, the trite repetitive stuff that most of the Hollywood films are stories we've seen over and over again, but instead stories that make us ask questions of ourselves and our existence. Um, those are the ones that add meaning to life as you said so uh i hope you keep making movies until you die i hope when you die it'll be decades and decades from now thank you brother and then maybe i'll come back and uh make a couple more um <laughs> and i really appreciate you doing this and uh and i'm psyched to see beasts man i think we'll have an assembly in a couple weeks man so i, I can't wait to show it to you get your advice yeah beautiful dude um i'm psyched man all right well uh I guess that wraps it up for the Tog House podcast. <laughs> <laughs> go have a swim for me, man. Go have a swim oh, yeah. and uh, um, go, go play in some dinosaur prints. Oh, yeah. I'm oh, do yeah. Some oh we're about to premiere, actually. I got to run off to the premiere. Oh. 3,000-year-old 3, amphitheater. Boom. Don't, don't forget to put on your pants. <laughs> <laughs> oh, right. I should do that now. I've been doing this completely nude. I hope that's all right. <laughs> I, I could feel you, man. I could feel you across the void. <laughs> through another dimension <laughs> alright some, some, some I love to yelling up and the baby and I'll see you soon alright later brother hi this is Nick Dawson from Talkhouse Film and you've been listening to Mike Cahill and Kerry Fukunaga in conversation on the Talkhouse Film podcast for more filmmakers talking about film and TV go to film.thetalkhouse.com. Hi, my name is Kerry Fukunaga, and I'm also... No, I tell you, fuck that up, didn't I? <laughs> 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 Talkhouse Film Podcast. My name is Kerry Fukunaga. Mm-hmm.